Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And you join us for a discussion of Fast and Furious 9. This is a series that's been going on for 20 years. I know. 2001 this began and it's, with the exception of the spin-off that we saw a couple of years ago, Hobbs and Shaw, this is the first of these films I've seen. The first of the main saga, if you like. I've seen others, yeah. but I can't remember which ones. You've seen this twice now. I have. So what drew you back to it? You. <laughs> you wanting to see it. I did want to see it, but, but to be fair, you weren't... I didn't have to drag you to it. You you seemed interested enough to, to give it a second go. I did, though. I kind of, I kind of regret it, actually agreeing to it, really, because, <laughs> you know... But then there wasn't anything new to see. I mean, we were living in an odd moment at the cinema. Mm. I don't understand why they're just not filling up the screens with classics and giving people options... Yeah, there are times we just want to go to the movies and there is nothing to see. Mm. So basically, I have seen everything in Cineworld. I saw everything that was playing in Cineworld weeks and weeks ago, really. So then I thought, fine. I'm like. But it also suggests that when you first saw this, you came up with the impression that it was kind of diverting enough, entertaining enough, and yes. inoffensive enough to come back and see it a second time. Yes, I thought, I thought it was dumb, but I, I, I wasn't bored. And I thought maybe looking at those action sequences deserved the second look. To be honest, I thought that they would be better than I found them today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a film that uh, does not reward a second viewing, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I got the impression it, well, it didn't really reward my first viewing. But it's interesting because this is a huge, huge series. It's grossed billions of dollars. It's, it's a big series, right? It does, they haven't got ten movies out of it for no reason. No, it grosses like billions of dollars each installment. And, yeah. Um, so, when I went into the film, I was kind of thinking of Mission Impossible. And we've brought up Mission Impossible recently. I think we, when we talked about the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, maybe we talked about it. And I think you and I are both in agreement that we really respect the, the kind of construction of the Mission Impossible films. They're really good films. Especially now that they've found a kind of formula that works. Mm. You know, because Mission Impossible 1, 2 and 3 kind of thought, where's this going? Is it really a series? But in the last three or four of them, they've found this formula that, you know, they, they have the action sequence, they have the, the wit, they have a cast of characters that's returning, they've settled into an aesthetic and a formula that works. And and the action sequences in Mission Impossible films are real high points of mm. cinema. You know, they, they are very, very, very well orchestrated and put together and everything makes sense in them and you have real sense of stakes and all this. And the reason I was thinking about that with regards to Fast and Furious was because this comes from having never seen one before but having lived in the same world as them for the last 20 years and having, you know, there's a little bit of osmosis of just understanding what this series is vaguely. You know, this started off as these car chase movies and then they've become these kind of tank and military craziness movies. It seems to make no sense, right? But I did kind of think... I got the impression that there's something of the Mission Impossible formula in them of the big action set pieces that are fairly self-contained but really work. Mm. That's what I was hoping for. And I... I'm not entirely wrong about it, but I wasn't entirely right either. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's almost like the the idea is better than the execution in some some of them. Maybe. I think that's very true. I thought this was corporate filmmaking by the numbers, where everything is done in relation to a potential audience. So you you know you have the filmmaking in Paris, you have the filmmaking in Edinburgh, you have 
Tokyo. Mm. You know, you try to get as many countries involved as possible. You try to get as many people from as many different countries with name recognition as possible. You try to get people from different entertainment media as possible, like wrestlers, rappers. Mm. And so, you know, and then you build chases around them. That's all. That's the appeal of this, right? And I've never been like a motorhead, so actually that's that's never mm. been something that has drawn me to the films. I mean, I suppose, you know, what drew me initially was, you know, the contrast between Ving Rams and I think it was Paul Walker, right? One ethnic, one blonde, blue-eyed. No, not Ving Rams, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel, sorry. <laughs> Ving Rams is in Mission Impossible. <laughs> sorry, getting them mixed up. Um, you know, so, and actually there's something very appealing about this film in its racial mix, uh-huh. yeah, uh, that one doesn't often see. There's something very appealing in its multiracial use of music, mm-hmm. yeah. So all of those things are uh, a plus, but it's just so awful. Like some of the acting is so awful. It really reminded me of soap opera acting, mm. you know, where they say your mother's died. And the actor goes, hmm, with the lips, or, you know, and yeah. turns the head and holds the shot for a really long time as the music takes you to the commercial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bing Diesel's acting is all like that. I was going to say, we were can't... brothers. And then he purses his, his reptilian little lips you know, and holds the pose for a long time. <laughs> See, I think I'm not, it's not even that good because I think I was looking at Vin Diesel and going, you haven't, he, he doesn't actually move in any shot. He doesn't move his face. It's like he sets up. He goes, right, I'm going to do this gesture in this shot. And he sets up his face. And then they go, action. And they shoot him for about three seconds. And then they go, cut. He doesn't actually move. He doesn't, he doesn't purse his lips. He's pursed his lips ahead of time. P- possibly. He's, <laughs> he's very, awful. He's very, very, very bad. Uh, and the reason... I, I mean, I was thinking soap opera as well. Because for me, this is like coming into the 95,000th episode of Coronation Street. With no idea who anybody is. Mm. But everything everyone says is extremely important. And every character that shows up, you're supposed to recognise. Now, it's not the film's fault I don't recognise any of them. Sorry, we've got the window open because it's a sweltering day because of global warming, because of people driving too fast. (laughs) Um, (coughs) It's not the film's fault I don't recognise anyone in the film, right? It's fair enough for the film to expect you to come to it with some knowledge. It's the ninth one in the series. I don't mind that. But it is quite funny, then, these people show up and when you come to it with no knowledge yourself, it just seems quite silly. Oh, someone shows up and you and you, you maybe recognise the actor, but you have no connection to them. It also means you have no connection to anything in the story. And then as, on top of that, and this is this is a problem actually, which is not just my fault. It doesn't actually do anything that interesting with them. The one thing that is interesting is the drama between the Vin Diesel character and the John Cena character, who are brothers. And you get all this backstory. Hey, look, I know you're making a face. When I say interesting. In quotation marks. <laughs> it, it, it could have been something. And I didn't mind the history. I didn't mind the dream sequence, actually, that, that Vin Diesel has. It's quite simple, but I thought it was reasonably effective when he kind of walks through his memories and pieces together what actually happened to their dad. Again, it's a neat idea. It's so poorly done. Maybe, but I, I didn't mind it. But the thing is, like, because there's this machismo and, and, and po-facedness and seriousness laid on top of everything, it takes itself so seriously that it becomes quite hard to take seriously. Well, for it's me, done so badly. it's a film that watching it the second time, I was just too tired and dispirited to even groan. Mm. You know, things that were making you groan, actually. Yeah. You know, you always criticize me for groaning in the cinema. <laughs> and, you know, I normally can't help it. But actually, this time, I just, I couldn't even be bothered to groan. It was just, like, too exhausting what you were saying. It was awful. And I was getting 
<laughs> um, judgmental and a bit <laughs> angry, you know, because I was thinking, okay, I can understand why uh, Vin Diesel does these films. He can't do anything else. <laughs> I, you know, I can understand why all the supporting characters do these films, right? You, you've got to make a living as an actor. But then you look at Helen Mirren and... Um, Charlie Theron. And Charlie Theron. And you go, why are you prostituting yourself like this? Why are you, why, you know... Why are you putting more junk in the world, really? And I, I thought with Helen Mirren, at least, you know, it offered her enough. It was a really um, a good role. Yeah, it's a role that makes that shines in the film. Yeah, uh, you know, she arrives with her diamonds and she looks fantastic, and then she gets to drive. And you know, I think I can imagine how it's so appealing for like a, a seventy-five or eighty-year-old to get a role like this. But Charlie Theron is completely wasted. And you think, what made her accept this role? Why is she in it? Well, she you was know. in the last one, right? Wasn't she the villain in the last yes. one? Yes. And so they've continued that role, but, you know, as to... Well, she could have said, I'm not doing it unless you do something better with me. Mm. I mean, I just don't understand why people of that caliber do shit like this, really. You know, it can't mm. be for the paycheck. You know, maybe it's got a brand thing where they've also lost, you know, their uh, willingness to be artists and are just a corporate brand that they are introducing to new audiences or something. But anyway, it's really dispiriting to see people like that and shit like this. Yeah, it's funny because at one point you jokingly leant over to me and said, all-star cast. And you're like, it is, but almost no one is actually used very well. No. Kurt you know, Russell's in it also. Yeah, that's when you said wasted. that to me. Um, like John Cena is a very likeable presence. He's a likeable person, but his character isn't really up to that much in this. Michelle Rodriguez is wonderful. I like an Completely awful lot. Completely wasted. She's. I think she's always wasted. Like the the one thing I've seen her in where she's not basically a bloke with tits is Widows, which actually plays upon her persona because it, she kind of breaks down in it. Mm. You know. But normally she's she's very professional and everything, but you, she's not asked to do anything that beyond. It's this very, very interesting m- that you do that because for me she's someone who's always alive, right? Yeah. Like you know, there's something very human and alive in her and you have someone like Helen Mirren who's not alive in that way Mm. but who's very theatrical and glossy and you know through gestures and clothes and so on makes a great impact and it's fun to watch Mm. then Charlize Theron is completely wasted she can't she can't make something out of nothing on her own really the way that Helen Mirren can and she doesn't have that kind of quality of being alive in the camera the way that Michelle Rodriguez is. You know, so it's kind of very interesting to compare, you know, and I think they're they're the best of the film, mm. you know. Let's think about the action. The film is very stupid, but it's stupid in a couple of different ways. Now, there's a stupid that I like, which is what you see in the first action scene of the film, basically, which is this kind of chase in some sort of islands in the Pacific Rim or something like that. I'm not sure if they're fictional or not. Anyway... You end up with this ridiculous car chase where you've got like a Dodge Charger and a Mustang driving off road. It makes no sense. And then they've all they've got like uh, grappling hooks that spring out of them. They go swinging around. Stuff. A bridge breaks, and then you find your main guy, John Cena, drives off a cliff and is caught by a huge spy plane type thing that shows up. Stupid, really stupid. And if the film has a sense of humour about that, I really don't mind that. No, I you don't know? mind that. It doesn't um, have enough. Actually, things it doesn't have enough of a sense of humour about that. I think it tries to, but there is there's this connotation in in the tone that this is badass and you should be impressed. 
Whereas in something like, I will compare it again to Mission Impossible, you get these things that undercut that. You know, like when something very stupid happens or something very daring comes off in an action scene in Mission Impossible, you'll get Tom Cruise or Simon Pegg saying, you know, oh, how do we get away with that? Or there'll be something that undercuts, you know, that we shouldn't have survived this. Or if it's Rebecca Ferguson's character, she'll say, how am I stuck in this with these idiots? Whereas in this, what you get is Tyrese Gibson, his line that follows, you know, an impressive or silly thing that he did will be like, I'm fucking badass. And you get the impression that that is supposed to come off as funny. This is how comedy and action works for idiots. I mean, I think there are two things. First, in the comparison with Mission Impossible, I always feel that in Mission Impossible, there's a degree of plausibility, at least in <laughs> fantasy, right? You know, they, ex- they explain you the science, they explain how things work, mm. you know, they explain the dangers, and then Tom Cruise does it against all odds, right? So, sure. you know, so of course it's fantastic and, you know, but there's a logic to it that you follow, right? This... You know, the scene going across the bridge was just stupid. Like, yeah. you know, you know it doesn't work that way. Da, 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 da. And actually, so they don't even give you enough of a plausibility. They don't explain that if you close the clutch or something, then, you know, you can do that. Mm. I mean, it's just stupid, right? Yeah. And so, you know, kind of when they go on to in space with the Tootsie Rolls and it's all like one of those Roger Moore, James Bond films, I kind of went along with it in a way, or you think, oh, well, it looked pretty anyway. <laughs> and and the chemistry between Gibson and Ludacris, not brilliant, but but it's yeah, okay-ish, it's, right? It's competent. Yeah. So those kinds of things bother me more than, you know, the other things, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the only thing that had any wit was the magnet. And then, you know, the idea of the magnet is witty. And then what they do with it is really what I hate most about American culture. It's a kind of a barbarism, a brutishness, you know. It's like, it's not enough to put a life in danger. No, you've got to have 55,000 cars being drawn to the magnet. And, well, that's know. what these films are, you know. It's a, this excess of, of, of carnage well, and car destruction. It just feels too much for me. I don't like yeah. it at all. No, sure. But that's what they are. I mean, I'm, well, not, I'm not saying that's an excuse. I'm saying that is, that is what these things do. These films are about, you know, look how many cars we smashed up. We smashed up all these cars for real. And that's something worth showing off about. I don't know. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, I mean, Hobbs and Sean wasn't did that this bad. No, and, no, no. You know, and when you see the films that uh, Jason Statham does, the one where he drives that fancy car. You Transporter? Know, the Transporter films. It's just so much about the driving and the sleekness and, mm. you know, style and attitude. You know, they're not thuggish like this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a real thuggery in these films that's, you know, that involve, you know, that has no respect for property, the environment, the individual. So it gives you all of this righteous, you know, family ideology in a very sanctimonious way. And in the meantime, it's all, it's, it's, thuggy about everything else. Well, I want to continue with the idea of the different kinds of stupid. So, like, the one type for me is the stupidity of the excess, Mm. you know. And I do think it does have a certain sense of humour about itself in that respect. It it knows that this is very cartoonishly silly. It's very meta about it. Yeah, I think the the Pontiac Fiero, which is this, you know, little sports car from the 80s, becoming a spaceship... You know, it's not it's not exactly pointed out that this is so absurd, but you see it in space with Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson City, and you're like, this is silly, this is mm. funny. So it has a certain amount of sense of humour about it, but as I say, I think it also 
is trying to is, is quite macho and almost kind of aggressive about how how cool it's supposed to be. The other type of stupid, which is awful, is in the writing and in the script well, and the lack bad. of wit. This is a film written by very very stupid people mm-hmm. who have no reference points beyond Star Wars and you know other movies. No one has a witty thing to say. You know, the things that people say which are aggressive and loud, you really get the impression are things that are supposed to be coming across as funny lines. Mm. So they really don't work. There was hardly a joke in it that worked for me. I wish it was smarter about being dumb, you know? I don't mind a big, dumb, very, very silly action movie, but I don't, I don't like when you feel like it's genuinely dumb that the people behind it, they have no sense of irony. Yes. You know? I mean, there are some things that are just so dumb that I think are really disrespectful and that actually it bothers me to see American cinema, which, you know, one of the reasons why I love American cinema is because it was so smart. (laughs) You know, you see those 1930s films with James Cagney and it was about people who had no education maybe, but who were smart and who acquired the education, who went to night school or, you know, Mm. learned how to be the best gangster or whatever. You know, they valued intelligence. This is a film that just values dumbness. You know, like the whole thing with the Tootsie Rolls in space and, you know, you're the one who's into the numbers, I drive. I mean, okay, you know, that could be, could have been a joke. But it wasn't a joke. Or it, does, it doesn't play well. It's, and it, it, if it's meant to be a joke, I think it is meant to be a joke, but it's not funny. It's not witty enough. It's not clever. It, there's no. nothing in it. Um, and also, to make the villain, the head villain, a woman who... Is is smart, yeah. Mm. She's the one who's a scientist who knows the computer programs. Who mm-hmm. they want to keep her away from code because of the things she can do. That's the villain. She may be a villain, but that's also why she's threatening. I mean, she's the most threatening part of the film, actually, which to some degree suggests a respect for what she can do with her intelligence. You know, um, she's not considered awful because she's smart. Oh, no, she, I think she because is. Because of what she can do with her smarts. Well, the two things go together. I mean, you know, she is the villain because she's smart. I'm not convinced. I know what you're saying. Mm. I'm not convinced that quite holds. Well, I think... Um, I think people don't succeed because they're dumb, but they are very dumb, and it's their brawn and their muscles that play a big part in that. But, for, for instance, the thing with the magnet, they, they get this electromagnet, as you pointed out, and then they continue to use it once they've got it off the people they're fighting. And they try to sell it as something they're using intelligently. Right? They have a plan with it. They put one half in one car, one half in the other car. They do pincer movements on the big truck that they're chasing. The idea is that they are using it intelligently to take down this truck that's much bigger than they are. Um, that is being sold as a smart plan. Well, I'm a Okay, that's never really communicated. And actually, I was thinking when both of the brothers were doing the same maneuver, mm. yeah, in with the big truck in between, I was thinking, why are they doing the same maneuver? They haven't communicated. They haven't <laughs> said, let's do this, right? Like, yeah. yeah, stupid. And it is a film in which Braun wins over intelligence. I mean, that bit where, um, you know, she's coming in with what you think is a fighter plane, but really is a drone. And then, you know, the turn of the car crashes it, mm. you know, and you think, oh, well, that's her gone. And you think, and then you see, no, no, it's just, you know, she's still safe in a warehouse somewhere. Because she's uh, smart. Well, but what has defeated that particular moment, which is the end, is Braun. Yeah. You know, so. 
I'm not, I, I, I do get what you're trying to say. I'm not. I'm just not sure. I, I think it follows entirely. Well, I think. I think the film is trying to sell that these characters have brains about them, but it, but it's done it. Well, but it's very it. dumb. Yeah. It's a very dumb film, though. Um, so, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's villainizing intelligence. Villainizing. I think is it weird? is. I, I personally think it is, and in a kind of sexist way, because, you know, the only smart people in this film are the women. So, yeah, you know, like I say, I'm not sure that's the film's. I'm not um, sure it's set out to do that <laughs> either, mm. but that's the effect, you know. Uh, so, yeah, because I'm not sure that's what the film thinks. The film thinks that its characters have used their brains to to win the fight. Yeah, well, it's so basically the intelligence of their characters is going. I will use my arms this way. I'll use my car this way. And so everything they're using is big and strong and brutish, but they're using their brains to activate them. <laughs> that's what the film thinks. Yeah, right. Um, I'm saying that's what the film thinks. It also just has kind of competence problems with the action and the storytelling. I mean, I was so confused so much about who's going where and why. For instance, that big chase at the end with the they're trying to get this satellite uplink. Right? Why is that happening inside this big truck that they're mm. chasing down? Where's it going? Mm. Never explain where it's going. The reason it's happening inside a big truck is because it's a Fast and Furious film. It needs to be happening on wheels. Yeah. So it can be a chase. Where are they going? Why are they in this city? You know, all this kind of stuff. None of that is explained. And I, I tell you what it is. I, I can explain it because there is one thing the film does in this regard that is actually good, that works. Which is in when they're in Edinburgh and they're escaping... Uh, in that yellow truck and the, the, the chase is kind of spread out amongst the city but the yellow truck's part of it right and then you've got Vin Diesel chasing down John Cena on the roofs of trucks mm, yes and then you see the yellow truck on a road beneath them right mm. like they're on a bridge sort of or they're, they're, on, they're on a higher level and you see the yellow truck and Vin Diesel sees the yellow truck and you see him see it so the film sets up that's where we're going right and then he jumps after John Cena who you are aware is a couple of trucks ahead of him jumps into him they jump off the truck they jump over the bridge and they land on the yellow truck right now that's set up you know how that's going to happen and the film is it's fairly effective in how it's set it up and played it out that is the one time it does something like that yes the rest of the time nothing is really set up in that respect there's no as we always talk about there's no sense of geography sense of where things are where they're going the relationship of character to each other you know if there is it's it's brief but the sense of kind of uh, of stakes, of goals, of individual uh, kind of problems, that kind of thing, it's extremely clumsy and cluttered in all of that. And it has no wit as to how it shows you the things either. It's really I mean, poor action filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, the scenes where John Cena was going down from Edinburgh Castle or through the Golden Mile and, you know, all the hill. He's abseiling. Yeah, he's abseiling. Mm. I mean, my God, you know, you could have... A Bond film would have made so many jokes out of that. Yeah. Right? There's a tree coming. How does he avoid it? You know, or a bird is going to shit on him or something. Mm. Right? But, you know, kind of... Or even to focus on Vin Diesel and how he's going to get to where, you know, that abseiling is clearly headed. Yeah. Right? Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. It, that's how... That's, that's really the crux, isn't it? Like, it doesn't do anything... Mission Impossible would do that. James Bond would do that. And actually, Hobbs and Shaw did things like that. Exactly. The, the action in Hobbs and Shaw had wit to it. Yeah. And it had structure and intelligence. Yes. And I can say that. You know, I've seen it twice as well now. Mm. Uh, and actually, it's one of those films, like, you know, if it shows up on TV, I wouldn't mind kind of seeing bits of it again. I, I actually find, you know, the interplay between Jason Statham 
and the rock the rock uh, you know to be to be to be wonderful yeah and i like watching them and i like the way that the you know their action scenes kind of turn out this is just i mean even that film is on a completely different level than this one yeah absolutely and to be fair if you go back and listen to that podcast you'll find that we are not complimentary throughout about it mm. but it's a film that surprised us and mm. how much we liked it um, you know, I think we we also said that we found certain things kind of puerile, some of that interplay, mm. the, and the kind of the way they throw insults at each other is not all that witty. Mm. But it had it had something, and it had character and personality, and this film lacks all of that. This film is about it's about the soap opera, and I guess you have to be invested in this very self serious soap opera that I just cannot be. Also, because it's dishonest about it, you know, and actually that's worth thinking about, you know. So what is it about these films of family, family, family? I mean, at a time when fewer couples stay together than almost ever in the U.S., you know, you have those enormous kind of statistics of, you know, fathers who don't pay child support even, you know, like, where is this thing about family, the importance of family, of staying together come in? And then the film is dishonest about it, because actually we see no family. You know, so, so maybe, you know, the two brothers, yeah, mm-hmm. have their issue. But then you could see that the Michelle Rodriguez character has a wonderful family, or the other characters. Well, no, no families at all. <laughs> like, yeah. So where is the wonderfulness of family, right? It's just, a, it's just like almost like a, a sentiment in bad faith. You know, the film doesn't even believe in, right? And it's too bad because it could have done something wonderful about maybe creating your own family. Mm. You know, how family is important, and you know, having people who support you emotionally and socially and whatever. Yes, and it doesn't have to be biological or no, but no, it's yeah. So you, you would have found you would have found that cynical too. Maybe I mean I don't I can't imagine it finding a way to not you know you would have gone ugh. Maybe, <laughs> but at least have some logic. I mean, you know, this is all like sanctimony mm. against itself. It's like telling you one thing, showing you another. It's like the priest praising the family and having three mistresses, you know, <laughs> and kind of molesting kids on the side. I mean. <laughs> well, the film the film opens up with Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez, who I'm guessing are supposed to be in a relationship. Yes. Um, but Michelle Rodriguez is not the mother of Vin Diesel's son. You uh, again, you hear in a line of dialogue, and I assume you know this if you've seen the rest of the films, mm. that the mother uh, has previously died. So they are a kind of you know a, a, a constructed family to some degree. And the thing with the son is, you're introduced to the son, Vin Diesel loves his son, Michelle Rodriguez gives him the necklace, which becomes important throughout the film. He wants to protect his son, this thing about when someone shows up at their house, he puts the son in a box, and keep quiet, you know, I'm protecting you. The people who come to the house are, you know, ludicrous and the rest, and they're saying, there's this bad thing going on, they're going to try and blow up the world, or whatever it might be, we need your help, and he goes, no, 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 I can't do it. It's like in... in uh, uh, in Endgame, the, mm. the Avengers film, where they go to Tony Stark, you know, Tony Stark has managed to find his peace or whatever, and they come to him and say, we need to do this, and he says, no, I don't want to do it, I've got a family. Yeah. But then, obviously, what, what Vin Diesel does is decide to get involved, he joins them all. But that decision is made off-screen, right? That like So he, you've, you've set up that he loves his son, wants to protect his son, this isn't worth it to him. And then he's showing up at the airport to go off with them. I want to see the decision-making process, right? I want to see how he decides, actually, I have to make the sacrifice. I have to hope that it's worth it. I have to say goodbye to my son. I have to hope I come back. You don't, right? It just happens off screen. Actually, it's not addressed. The son is forgotten for mm. most of the film. He doesn't even have a scene where he like thinks about, oh, I hope this is worth it. The son is not, he's not mentioned until he shows up in the dream sequence, actually. And the film has more endings than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Jesus. 
It ties up. It, I, I get that the characters are all in different places, uh, and it wants to tie them all up. But it, but then it brings them together with this dinner party at the end. It was awful. Um, see what a good friend I am. What suffering this awfulness with you? Yeah, but I I don't think if you had remembered that the film was as bad as this, you would no, never. No, I didn't feel it was as it was that bad the first time. I must say that's what I mean. Yeah. If you if you had had that impression, you would never have come. No, it's true. <laughs> but even so, uh, I wouldn't have gone to see it twice had it not been because you wanted to. No, no, sure. Uh, well, so yeah. anyway, it's shit. Any last words? No. Okay, it was terrible, don't go see it. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for listening, we're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>